Amen. You may be seated. We're back in our sermon series in Luke today. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 4, where today's text is printed there on page four, uh, four, 10, sorry, in your bulletin. Um, pick up our reading in verse 14. A little bit longer reading today, but I want to kind of give you the larger context here. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were, were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is, has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is, this, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. And move on us, Lord, now mightily by your spirit as we hear this in Jesus' good name. Amen. If you're one of those people who writes in your Bible, I would suggest scribbling next to verse 14, Act 2, because this is Act 2 in Luke's drama, and from the very moment that the curtain rises in this second act, and this character strides on stage, you can feel the energy. As this curtain rises, and there's stuff's about to happen. There's, there's movement here. And if this second act in the Gospel of Luke kind of crackles with anticipation as Jesus strides here out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
If there's kind of this sense of anticipation, it's because Act 1 did its work well, because you'll remember that in his very brief, it's only three and a half chapters, but in his brief but masterful introduction, Luke not only introduces the main character of his story, which is generally a good idea when you're writing, you know, give us who the main character of the story is, but he doesn't just tell us that Jesus is going to be the main character in his story. You'll remember that he identifies Jesus early on as the central character of a much bigger, centuries-old story going all the way back actually to the Garden of Eden, what we call the macro story of the Bible. Jesus is the center of that whole story from the really creation until Luke's writing. And so when Jesus steps into history in the, in, in the early chapters in this gospel, he is, he is stirring the dust, as C.S. Lewis once put it, he is stirring the dust of ancient promises, ancient plans of God. This ancient lore of all these people who have been waiting for God since Adam sinned and plunged our human race into ruin. And there's all this that's been going on for all these centuries. And Jesus kind of stirs all that up when he steps into history. So Luke makes it clear this is not just another character in a series of characters. This one is the character on whom the entire story, the whole purpose of history actually hinges. We already know that from Act 1 and now Act 2 here he comes, and we have some idea of who this one is, this Jesus. We have some idea of how much is converging now in his life on earth, and we're going to see him here start to get to work. So part one, act one, who is this one? Now this one, we know something of him, and he's going he's gonna to work. And these first two stories of his work, of Jesus doing things, they're set in Nazareth, which is his hometown, and then off to the northeast a bit, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, a town called Capernaum. And these first two stories are really important because right out of the gate, they address a question that I, I know it haunts me. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it haunts you. It's haunted Christians all through the centuries right up till today. And that question is, why doesn't Jesus do something? Why doesn't Jesus do something? Do you ever feel that question? I mean, if Jesus really wants us, and he wants other people to believe in him, you'll get this from kids sometimes, because they're, 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 they're intelligent, and they pick, the, like, if Jesus wants people to believe in him, if he wants people to trust him, if he wants people to obey him, then why doesn't Jesus just show up more, show himself visibly more often? Like, wouldn't it be great if the heavens would just sort of open this afternoon and Jesus would just, like, speak from heaven and set a bunch of records straight? Wouldn't that be so much better? Why doesn't Jesus demonstrate his power more? Why doesn't Jesus provide more benefits? Why doesn't he relieve more suffering? Man, there's a big one. Why doesn't Jesus give us more answers? Why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he crush his enemies? Man, some days I'd like to just watch it happen. Why doesn't Jesus bring justice and peace to the world now? Why doesn't Jesus do something? You know, it can feel sometimes there are a lot of words in our religion. We'd like to see more action from this one who says he is who he is. Well, I'd like you just to keep those questions in mind as we step into these two scenes. Why doesn't Jesus do do something. And I want to start in Nazareth. So here he is. He's getting started doing something. And it's very significant that Jesus begins his public ministry in a ch church service of the Jews, kind of like this, I guess. 
Um, but he begins his public ministry not interestingly with a miracle, but with a scripture. That is important. The, the scroll of Isaiah is handed to him, and he reads. It sort of lines up with what we saw in verse 15, that he has already been teaching, speaking, opening the scriptures in synagogues. And I, I just want to pause there. I don't want to rush past that to sort of get to the good stuff. He begins with, the, with scripture, and, and with this scripture of all scriptures, this is from chapter 61 of 66 chapters in the prophecy of Isaiah. And I wish, you know, I don't know if you guys would find this exciting. I just wish we had time. It'd be so much fun to take a couple of hours. I will not do this. Take a couple of hours and just work through for a minute how Isaiah, like he's about seven or 800 years before Jesus, how writing in the twilight of David's kingdom, so it's a bad time in Israel, like Israel has sinned, Israel's kings have sinned, and now this kind of superpower of the ancient Near East at the time called Assyria is already on the horizon, and behind them Isaiah can already foresee Babylon, an even greater power is coming to bring you know, some really hard judgment on Israel for their disobedience to the Lord. And yet, Isaiah writing, he, he is looking through this twilight, and he's looking past the nightmare of this coming exile in Babylon for God's people. And he sees here, in verse 19, what he calls the year of release, the year of the Lord's favor, the year of liberation, when this anointed one, arrives full of the spirit so he's he's seeing some really dark stuff coming because Israel has sinned against the Lord but he's looking already past that as God gives him insight and he sees that there will after that exile there'll be a year in which there'll be release and liberation and this anointed one full of the spirit will come and good that will be the time of God's favor and it'd be even cooler having looked at Isaiah and how he worked through his entire you know 66 chapters to get to this text then to realize that he's working on something that goes way back into the deep history of Israel, all the way back to Moses, because Moses, in his legislation from Mount Sinai, he uh, instituted in Israel something called the 50th year jubilee. So Isaiah's writing about this year of release. Well, that would have been something that Israelites already knew about because Moses talked about a year of release. Every 50 years, after seven sevens of years, there was this jubilee year, and guess what happened in the year of jubilee? Well, debts were canceled. Debt slaves were released from their slavery. Land inheritance was restored to God's people. It was an amazing time in which kind of everything was reset and people were just freed from their, their bondages. And so Isaiah says God's going to bring that year of jubilee on a much grander scale when this anointed one comes. And so you can make the case that this text that Jesus is reading here, it kind of sums up the entire thing we call the Old Testament. All this expectation of what God was going to do for his people who wait for him in faith. And you could say that Jesus' words in verse 21, so he reads this scripture that kind of sums up everything Israel's been waiting for, but then his response in verse 21, you could say, kind of sums up everything we call the New Testament, all the scriptures written after Jesus, because he just simply says, it's here. (laughs) It's fulfilled today. All that, that year of Jubilee, that great year of release, it is fulfilled today. The anointed one is here, which is really what the whole New Testament is telling us about Jesus. Well, that sets off a buzz. You see there in verse 22, the synagogue really buzzes. I mean, that's a heavy thing to say. Millennia they've been waiting for God to act, to bring his salvation to his people. And and Jesus says, this is it. 
And there, you know, you can feel the kind of the confusion a little bit. You know, there are people like us. You know, we, we open the scriptures all the time, and God speaks grand things to us. And what do we do? We sit here, and we're thinking about lunch. You know, I mean, really, it's just it's like kind of over our heads. And they're, you know, they're, they're interested. They're, they're marveling a bit. This, you know, this young rabbi sitting there, and it's obvious he's full of gracious wisdom. He, he speaks well from the scriptures. That's impressive. And they've heard some crazy reports from other places, like this guy does miracles, you know, that could authenticate a, a, a claim that he's the Messiah. So there's kind of that part of the synagogue. Oh, maybe. Wow, maybe. And then the others are like, you know, we, we watched this kid grow up. We've known him since he was a wee lad. You know, he's Joseph's son. And so they're just kind of buzzing back and forth. And then Jesus just, as only Jesus can, he just drops a grenade in the middle of the floor. You know the problem with Jesus? You know what would be the problem with Jesus right now if he was standing here instead of me? He knows your hearts. That's the problem with Jesus. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the hearts of these people in the synagogue. And so he just drops a grenade on the floor and goes right after something. They are not prepared for this. It almost sounds rude. He says, I'll tell you what you really want me to do. I'll tell you what you're really thinking. You want me to do something. You want me to show God's power the way I have done in Capernaum. That's what you want. Because everybody wants a physician. But he says, what we don't want is a prophet. Everybody wants a fixer. Give me a doctor for my needs. Fix stuff in my life, Jesus. Physician, you, you did things elsewhere. How about doing something for the home crowd? Heal yourself. Heal your own people. That's what we want. We want a physician. Jesus says, here's the thing. A prophet gets no honor in his hometown. Because we'll take the fixits, we'll take the physician doing his thing to make our lives better, but a piercing, disruptive word from God, now that's a little different. That's a little different thing. That maybe we're not quite so ready to receive. There's a very interesting play on words here, because Jesus is just from Isaiah, in verse 19, he is preaching to this synagogue the year of God's favorable acceptance. The Greek word is dekton, the dekton year, the year of God's favorable acceptance. But there's a little play on words in verse 24 when he says, the question is whether his announcement as God's prophet of what God is about to do through him, will it be accepted? Dektos. He's preaching the year of the dekton year, the year of God's acceptable favor. But will the prophet that God sends that message through be dektos, be accepted? That's the real question in the synagogue that day. The home crowd wants healings, don't we all? But are they ready to receive and trust and obey God's agenda through this, through this man, through this Messiah? That's the real question. And then Jesus, you know, he's not going to leave this alone. He goes after it a bit more. He says, we've seen this problem before, haven't we, about prophets not being received. Israel has a long history with prophets speaking for God. Take Elijah and Elisha, for example. They were the two mightiest prophets in Israel's history other than Moses. They ranked with Moses in terms of just miraculous power. They raised the dead. I mean, it was just crazy the stuff those two did. But it's interesting. Israel was so resistant to the word of God that Elijah couldn't even live in the land of Israel. He had to stay out of the land of Israel just to stay alive. And so he ended up taking God's life-giving word off to the north to this Gentile place called Sidon, and he raised 
a Gentile widow's son from the dead. And, he, and she said, interesting, a Gentile widow said to Elijah, I know now that you are God's prophet and that everything he speaks through you is true. That was a Gentile, a non-Jew receiving the word of the Lord through the prophet. And how about Elisha, Elijah's successor? Well, he was able to live in the land. But the only leper in that place who received and trusted and obeyed the word of the Lord through Elisha, who when Elisha said, go wash in the Jordan, finally after some stubbornness said, okay, fine, and went and did it, it was a, a Gentile, Naaman. Not the Lord's people. And the more people reject the word of God's prophets, the more they actually cut themselves off from the very purpose of miracles. What is the purpose of miracles? Casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, making the blind see, the lame walk. What is the purpose of miracles in the Bible? The purpose of miracles is to anchor our faith not on the effects of God's word, but on the God of the word. That's what miracles are for. God sometimes does miraculous things. He does heal people. But he does that to point back to himself, to, to anchor our faith on him, not just to make us all excited about miracles. And the more you resist the word of God, the more eventually, even when miracles happen, they're not going to have the, um, the effect they're supposed to because you're not really interested in the God of the word. And so Jesus essentially says the miraculous power that comes with the word of God, it will, it will in time be given over to those who will bow before the God who speaks. They will receive the miraculous power of God's word. Well, the synagogue just blows up. These people, who many of whom have literally grown up with Jesus, they have no intention of bowing to this upstart. They are not interested in submitting to his word as if he's the Messiah. They have zero tolerance for the notion that their privileges as God's people might actually be conditional on their responding to this one and could even be forfeited to others if they don't respond properly to him. They just have no interest in this. And there is something almost demonic in the fury with which they go after him. Just out of, almost out of nowhere, they, they try to kill him. It's interesting, couple, uh, last chapter, the devil tries to get Jesus to throw himself off this pinnacle to be crushed. And now he tries again through the crowd, but now as Jesus is at their mercy, it seems. The angels of God bear him up in their hands lest he be dashed on that stone below and he just walks through the crowd and goes on with his ministry. What's the lesson of Nazareth? I think the lesson of Nazareth is this. If all you want is miracles, you are not ready for a Messiah. If all you want is miracles, you're really not ready for a Messiah. Jesus is not here in Nazareth to bring God into the Nazarene's priorities he is here to bring them into God's priorities. That is his mission. They're not ready for that. It's interesting that Nazareth is never again mentioned in the New Testament, except in one very peculiar way. Many, many times, Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. That town, from that moment on, will matter in history only insofar as it relates to this one, the Messiah sent from God. It's kind of an ironic twist. And so he leaves his hometown never to return, so far as we know. He never did any wonderful works there. And so he goes to Capernaum up on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Now this story is clearly parallel to the Nazareth story. There's lots of similarities. This is a Sabbath again. It's a synagogue again. And he's in the synagogue of the Jews. But unlike the Nazarenes, who really wanted a physician but not a prophet, 
very interested in Jesus' power, not really interested in Jesus' authority. The villagers here in Capernaum are astonished, you see, in verse 32. And this is interesting, not so much by Jesus' miracles, though he does some amazing miracles here. They are astonished by the authority of his word. They are astonished at his teaching there because his word possessed authority. Now, that is a subtle distinction, beloved, but I really want to sort of just just pause there for a moment and and, and just see how crucial this is. Not not just Jesus' power, but his authority. Because when when Jesus' word, you see as we read on, he, he, he releases. So this is, you know, Jubilee, right? He's releasing this man from a demonic force that is enslaving him. He releases this man from from a demon. It is interesting that the Capernaum uh, crowd, their attention immediately rivets not so much on the effect itself. I mean, it's wonderful this man has been released from this demonic oppressor, but that's actually not what their astonishment focuses on in verse 36. They're amazed, and notice what they say. What is this word? Because with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Now, notice what's happening here. They are amazed by the fact, yes, it's amazing that the demon was thrown, thrown out of this man, and, and he's unharmed. But what really amazes them is that Jesus speaks as a ruler who must be obeyed. They're like, who? Who is this who can speak like this? So this is the effect over here, and they're amazed by that. But what that draws them to is, who rules like this? Who can speak to the forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of darkness, and just, they must obey? Who has authority like this? And again, that is the very point of miracles, isn't it? It's to show that Jesus is the one God has authorized to rule. And we see that in his miracles. He is authorized to rule. He is authorized by God himself to bring to fulfillment God's purposes. That is what it means that he's the Messiah. He he is the one that we can entrust ourselves to and we can serve him because he is the king, because he's Lord, because he has this authority, because he's like truly in charge. This is so very important because, you know, as you look at human history, Various people and agents, spiritual agents as well as earthly agents, various agents at various times in history wield various powers. And power comes and power goes, and powers rise and powers fall, and sometimes this group has the power, and sometimes that group has the power, and sometimes this power rises and this power falls. Powers, there's a lot of power flux in human history. Jesus alone has God's authority, God's own authority to command that all things shall do God's will and all things must obey. He is the only one with that authority. Lots of powers come and go. Jesus alone has that authority. God's will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the Capernaum crowd feels that. And beloved, that's why we can actually trust in Jesus. Because he's not just a miracle worker. God's rule through him is what the world truly needs. Yes, we need exorcisms. We need healings. There are a lot of broken things that need to be mended. But ultimately, who can bring all of that by the authority of his word? It's Jesus alone. He is what we need. And all of the visible effects 
that happen when God rules through Jesus, all those visible effects are pointing us back to him as the king, the savior, the Lord, the, the Christ, the Messiah. And notice that Jesus speaks with authority in both the spiritual realm with demons and the physical realm. He heals the whole person because he's Lord of spiritual world and the physical world. He releases, interestingly, a man from a demon. He releases a woman from a fever. The language there in verse 39 is that he rebuked the fever and it released her. Again, the jubilee. And you can see here now, it's very important, we'll get into this way more throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus' rule, Jesus' kingdom crosses social boundaries. Women, this would have been a little bit of a surprise that not only was he healing men, but also reaching out to this woman. That was a bit of a social boundary to cross in that culture. And so the kingdom is reaching past boundaries you wouldn't expect. It's interesting that unlike the townsfolk, the demon is absolutely clear about Jesus' identity, his authority, and his mission. Are you here to destroy us? To which the answer is, of course, absolutely. <laughs> Jesus said, I've come to destroy the works of the devil. The devil knows, this demon knows this absolutely. He knows who Jesus is, the authority he has. He is the king. He is the Messiah. You can see that in verse 41. Other demons cry out. They know he is the Christ, the Messiah. They know his mission. They are freaking out. And it's interesting that Jesus silences this demon again with a word. He says, you will not speak about me. You will not be the one to identify who I am. He will identify himself to the world in the Father's good time and the Father's good way. The demons will not be the preachers of this, of this news. Jesus will speak the word in the right time. Nicholas Perrin says this, I think this is quite, quite insightful. He says, with so many mistaken assumptions in place in this culture, Jesus will need the course of his ministry to show exactly what kind of Messiah he intends to be. Dare I say, it's not that much different in the 21st century evangelical church. Lots of people think they know who Jesus is and what Jesus should be doing. Over the course of his ministry, Jesus will show what kind of Messiah he intends to be as the Father has sent him to be. Now, in emphasizing Jesus' authority, I'm, I'm not downplaying the, the power, the effects of the power. The effects really matter. He is a physician. He does heal. He does bring relief. But the purpose of Jesus exercising his power is not just to fix people's felt problems and then send them off with a bunch of benefits. The purpose of the power that works in their lives is to turn people to him. What Israel needs is not just some people, some lame people to walk and some you know, blind people to see and some demons to be cast out. What Israel needs is for God to rule through this one. And that's why Jesus will later say that his works, his powerful works, are actually a call to repent, to turn back to God. He will later say, if the works that have been done in, in, in you, Capernaum, and you, Bethsaida, the cities of Galilee and Judea, if the works that have been done in you have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. They would have understood who I am, what my identity, my authority, my mission is. And there's a blindness in many of these cities in Israel. You'll notice in verse 43, Jesus is preaching good news. And what's the good news? It isn't just healings. It isn't just exorcisms. It's the kingdom, the rule of God through him. You miss that. And all these benefits will be very, very short-lived. What's the lesson of Capernaum? I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say 
that if the lesson of Nazareth is, if all you want is miracles, you're not really ready for a Messiah, I think the lesson of Capernaum, at least one of the lessons, is that Jesus deserves to be followed actually regardless of results, regardless of visible effects. If you are with Jesus, if you're with this king, if you are with this one God sent to save and restore the world to bring the jubilee, then one way or another, whether it's in this life or the life to come, everything else your heart longs for will follow. All the healing you long for will follow. All the riches you and pleasure you long for, it will all come with Jesus. You seek first his kingdom, everything else will be added to you. That is the promise. But you could gain the entire world without Jesus. And you lose it all. My kids are telling me this week there's a big-time YouTuber. He's a quite a big name, I guess, in the Minecraft world. 24 years old. Contracted cancer in his arm and just recently passed at 24 years of age. And the buzz is that by the time he passed, he had 10 million followers on YouTube. And indeed, since his death, his followers have jumped to four, 14 million. I actually wanted to weep when I heard this story. What does it profit you if you have 10 billion YouTube subscribers and you lose your soul? I sometimes cannot believe the stupidity of our priorities in our world today. If you do not have Jesus, you have nothing. You know this, beloved, because you're his. And if you have Jesus, you have everything. And Jesus wants people to have him. And what are we interested in? What obsesses us? What consumes the hours and energies of our days so often? It's like he's not even on the radar. But we know Jesus is our hope. Jesus is life. He is the pearl of great price. He is the desire of nations. And because we know that, even when Jesus lays some really heavy crosses on us, when he does not heal your fever, when he leaves you to experience suffering and torment, and it seems like it will never be relieved, even if Jesus lays some really heavy crosses on you, when you know Jesus, you know who he is, his identity, his authority, his mission, we are cheerful as people of God, and we cannot be seduced by the promises of rival gods or money or pleasure or princes or ideologues or peddlers of spiritual powers or peddlers of identity or peddlers of so-called wholeness because we have Jesus. Do you realize how free that makes you from seduction? People promising will make you whole. This will be the thing. I have the thing. I have the pearl. I have life. I have the way. I have the truth. I have Jesus. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. Amen? Because he is who he is. Because he's the Lord. Because he's the Messiah. I'm his. 
body and soul. So I'm free. I'm well. I'm whole. The response of the Capernaum townsfolk, it's strange. It's a little unclear. They've seen Jesus' authority. They've got that. But then they just want to hold on to him and have him keep doing miracles. Are they actually committed to follow him, to support the full scope of his messianic mission? It's interesting. Jesus says, listen, people, I must be going. I must because the Father has sent me. I have a mission. Or do they just want more benefits from him? Who will follow Jesus? That's the question. We'll have to wait till the next chapter to see that. Why doesn't Jesus do something? Why doesn't Jesus do something? You know, Jesus is doing something. He is forming a people who know his identity, his authority, and his mission, and who therefore serve him. In fact, he is forming a people who, because they know him, they can actually exercise his authority. They can speak in his name. They can act in his name, fearless of earthly powers. We'll see that in the book of Acts. It's actually, beloved, and with this I close, it's actually a pretty small thing to cast out demons and cast out fevers. The greatest thing Jesus does is to turn human hearts to seek first the kingdom of God. That is miraculous. So do that work on us, our Lord and our God, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.